0: that's not enough time for you to find hebrews 1 then nothing is long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of god he is the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now let's move down to verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Well, God also bore witness by signs, wonders, and various miracles, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. September 26, 2018. An Indonesian teen has been rescued after drifting at sea for 49 days on a floating fish trap and is back safely with his family according to the country's foreign affairs ministry. Nineteen-year-old Aldi had been working as a lamp-keeper on a remote fishing trap known locally as a Rompong, situated 75 miles off the north coast of Minato in the province of North Rompongs, which look like small huts, fishing aggregator devices that sit upon buoys and floats and are anchored to concrete blocks on the seafloor by rope. Aldi's job was to light lamps powered by a generator on the trap each night to attract fish. He was hired to spend six months on rompongs with someone visiting at the end of each week to drop off food, water, fuel supplies, and to harvest the fish. He said that in mid-July, strong southerly winds had caused high waves, resulting in the anchor rope rubbing until it broke. He said that he had communication with friends on other raft for about a week, and after that, He was all alone. The platform made it all the way to the waters of Guam, 1,600 miles away, where he was picked up by a Panamanian ship on August the 31st. It continued on to its port in Japan. He said that he saw many ships during his time adrift and shouted in Indonesian and banged on a can to attract attention. Eventually, by shouting help in English, he was able to attract the attention of the ship which rescued him. Aldi said that he had been scared and he often cried while adrift. Every time he saw a large ship, he said he was hopeful, but more than 10 ships had sailed past him and none stopped or saw Aldi. After arriving on September the 6th, Aldi was examined by the Japanese Coast Guard and declared healthy enough to return to his home country, the Indonesian Foreign Affairs Ministry said. Two days later, the Indonesian consulate facilitated his return flight home. They expressed their appreciation to all the parties involved in rescuing and returning Aldi home safely to Indonesia." Unlike a youth from Indonesia, Many members of the small house church somewhere in the city of Rome, beneath the shadow of the tyrannical Caesar, an anchor rope had been severed and a dangerous departure had begun with a tone of desperation and a shrill panic wake-up call given by the author of the Hebrews. Chuck Swindoll said that Hebrews is a letter to first century homeless people street people who have lost their homes lost their possessions lost their friends lost their loved ones and many may soon even lose their very own lives for the name of jesus all are facing intense persecution and they desperately need a word of hope hebrews 10:32. recall the former days when after you were enlightened You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Revelation 6 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. That is, those who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Or Hebrews 11. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Under the constant pressure of abuse, the loss of comfort, possession, security, even life, this small cell church gathered in a home somewhere likely in the heart of Rome, desperately needed... A word of hope. And that word was a reminder of three things Jesus is superior, Jesus is sufficient, and Jesus is sovereign. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's never a more timely message than today. Between 10,000 and 12,000 of our brothers and sisters. Are running for their lives in Afghanistan even as we arise on a Sunday morning and debate whether we ought to take the time to gather as a church or not. Their one great offense is simply this, they have converted from Islam to following Jesus. If a New Testament writer was to write to the Christians in Afghanistan or Western Africa or India today what encouragement would they give them and the answer is they would give them Hebrews chapter 1 as we make our way through Hebrews it is is not simply a theological declaration although this is a this is a masterpiece of writing and perhaps that's why the Spirit of God saw fit not to let us know who the human author was it is a a masterpiece of bringing together the Old Testament where every sign points to Jesus, the life and ministry, the words and works of Christ in the Gospels, and then the implications of the life of Christ as written in the epistles. It puts it all together in one 13-chapter package. But along the way, it's not only a great doctrinal, informational book, but it is also a pastoral book. Because frequently, he interrupts. In fact, five times, maybe six, he gives a pastoral warning. In chapter 2, verse 1, as we're going to look at this morning briefly, he warns against drifting. In chapter 3, verse 7, he warns against disbelieving. In chapter 5, verse 11, he warns against defecting from the faith. In chapter 10, verse 26, he warns against disparaging the gospel message and the Christ who brought it. And in chapter 12, verse 18, he warns against declining faith. This is a timely pastoral message. And regrettably, even though we're here, and I told somebody yesterday, I said, the problem with preaching chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, is that, that the people that need to hear it aren't here. The people that need to that are here don't need to hear it. It's probably not true of you. And then they said, "Well, you were probably jumping to conclusions. Perhaps there are those who do need to hear this message." I want you to notice that chapter two, verse one begins with the word "therefore." Classic rule number one of Bible interpretation: when you see the word "therefore," you pause and say, "What is it therefore?" And the interesting thing is that in the book of Hebrews, that word is placed there 13 times. So, in other words, what has just been said has practical implications. Or, as Ron and I have said for 35 years of teaching, if you're not done teaching until you ask the question, so what? So what? What difference does that make? So he says that Here. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, the author has appealed to the head. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he takes the head information and he appeals to the heart. He talks about the danger of drifting. Notice, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. To drift away, it simply means to let it flow by, or just to slip away, it's, it's, it's almost an, an unnoticeable. It's, it's like a, a ship that has been released from its moorings, and nobody seems to know that. And many years ago, our, our youngest daughter, Don Marie, was working for a company here in Lincoln that, that took an annual four-day cruise. Uh, for all of their staff, and because she was only 15 years old, the owner of the company called and said, you either have to give me guardian page, papers or her parents have to go along on the trip. And we said, well, let us think about that for a minute. Yeah, we can go. So remember Dale Emerson got up to preach and he said, Tom said that he has offered a cruise and he called and asked if I would substitute for him. And he said, I thought he meant go on the cruise and here I am preaching. So here we are in the port in uh, Florida, and uh, we're sitting down. We've got the ties and the jackets, and they're just about to bring our lobster out. And Linda said, we've left, haven't we? And we're like, I mean, it's this massive ship. I didn't feel anything. But she knew immediately, and she was sick for four days. I mean, it's just like that. So it's, it's what he's talking about. It's, it's, it's a ship that has been released from the moorings, and most people don't even notice It is a great loss that is happening, but most are unaware. Or it's like an oversized ring that has slipped off of the finger, and only at a later time do you discover its loss. The, the, The point of his passage is this, the apathy of the believer will suddenly steal you of your greatest joy you didn't even know it just it just happened sort of casually it's it's a careless mind that just got distracted and occupied with other things it was unaware that in in the soul in the heart in the mind there there was a change or a movement away from Matthew 13 says there are three causes For that it it, he calls it there the the weeds that grow up and choke out the seed of the gospel the first one is the weed of worry just getting through life day to day stresses and everybody mask mandates and all of those things paying the bills all of those getting the kids to all the sports events to which you've committed yourself just just the, the hassle of everyday life will choke out the seeds of the gospel or the unexpected blessing of wealth and prosperity. So all of a sudden, riches take more time. i got to worry about how am I going to use what I have? And how do I keep other people from stealing what I have? And all of that. And pretty soon I find out that, that the blessing of prosperity is choking out the weeds. Or regrettably in America, not in third world parts of the nation or the world, but in America, it's the, it's the weed of whoopee we just entertain ourselves to death i almost stopped on 180 coming down this morning as i'm going past our second greatest worship center in lincoln memorial stadium the sunrise was sending out this unbelievable rays and on the radio was elevation worship singing i'm going to see a victory <laughs> it's like I, I, I mean, I wanted to do a video so you could all appreciate it. We are, we, we, other things, fun, activities, hobbies, just the pleasures of life choke it out, or as Revelation 2 says, I have this against you. Yeah. Theologically, and you know, if there's any church, we preach that, in summer. if there's any church that I worry that Faith Bible Church could become, it's the church at Ephesus, where we, we, we have the greatest programs, we got the greatest Bible teaching, we got everything lined up but we have left our first love. That's what he's talking about, drifting away. I notice he says the warning. It's a a warning passage. It's the first of five pastoral interruptions to the flow of the letter. For since the message declared by the angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation so he goes back he's just talked about how the angels were the messengers from god prophets brought the word of god but jesus is greater than the prophets he is the living word from god he talked about the angels they were the messengers the delivery boys for god's word to god's people but jesus is greater than the angels but now he goes back not to diss the angels and says the message they brought, and he's talking about the law. i just give you these references for your marginal notes. Acts chapter 7, verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. He received living oracles to give to us. Chapter 7, verse 53 of Acts. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? This is Stephen confronting the scribes and the Pharisees. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Who you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and you did not keep it. Galatians chapter 3 verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And then Psalm 68, the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now the sanctuary. What he's talking about here is that God sent the angels with the law, the messenger. What does it look like to be the people of a holy God? The people of a holy God, if they want to reflect the image of the God that they worship, they look like this. That's the law. And but he says, notice that, that that word that was received, it proved reliable. And every transgression or every disobedience received a just retribution. It received a vengeance or a payment for it. A transgression is simply a violation of a rule or a law. It, it's, it's going against that which is drawn into sand or established. Disobedience is an unwillingness to either hear it or obey it and he says the angels brought the law and you read your Old Testament whenever they broke the law there was an immediate earthly consequence now if God is that serious about what message he sent with the angels he says how much more serious is God going to be if you don't accept the word sent by his son he calls it so great a salvation you see this law that was delivered by the angels had a a ring of doom and death about it. it 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 was as one of my bible college professors said it was It was simply a school bus that would deliver us to Christ the law could not save us and it simply drove us to insanity spiritually it 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 so frustrated us because thou shalt not and as Paul said in Romans chapter 7 and I think that Paul wrote Romans 7 at the pinnacle of his spiritual maturing And and he says, you know, at the end of it, he goes, oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free from this law of sin and death? But in there, he says, I would not have known that coveting was a violation unless thou shalt not covet. So you can keep all nine, and you get to number 10, and you're sitting on O Street, and somebody pulls up next to you in a Maserati or a new Jaguar or something, and just for a moment, you looked over and went, I wish that was mine, and you go, boom, just broke number 10. The law was given to drive us to Jesus. We desperately need hope. But there was a retribution, an earthly consequence. Thousands of people died when they violated the law. Read the Old Testament. Read the book of Exodus. Read the book of Numbers. He said, if God does that with that, what will He do with this so great salvation? What makes this salvation so great? Well, number one, It is a message delivered by the Son. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, to whom He created the world. The point of Hebrews is going to be this. Jesus is superior to everything. He's better than. He's greater than anyone or anything. He is also sufficient it's when he said to the disciples everybody else left do you also want to go away and Peter wisely and sightfully said Lord where would we go only you have the words of eternal life this message this great salvation is the final word and it is sufficient The answer to John the Baptist, are you the one or should we look for another? And the answer is, I'm the one. The question that you have to ask is, in your life, is he enough? And we also see in Hebrews that he is sovereign Savior over all. Jesus was and is God's final word. Again, I, I introduce it this way. All of the Old Testament points forward to Christ. Every sign points to Jesus. When you get to the Gospels, suddenly we understand what this mission and message was that the Old Testament was pointing us to. We study the words and the works of Christ. When we read the epistles, we are looking back at Christ's earthly life so in the old testament we're looking forward to his life in the epistles we're looking back and we're asking the question what are the implications of this message that the living word brought to deliver and then the encouragement is the book of revelation says he has spoken with finality there is nothing more to be revealed but the good news is he's coming again so we continue to plow through Knowing that ultimately, as we read earlier in Revelation 6, the martyrs will see the retribution of God. Ultimately, we win. That's the great salvation. Now the word salvation or save appears in the book of Hebrews nine different times. It appears more often in Hebrews than in any other book of the New Testament. In chapter 1 verse 14 for the sake of those who inherit salvation verse chapter 2 verse 3 if we neglect such a great salvation chapter 2 verse 10 should make the founder of their salvation perfect chapter 5 verse 7 to him who was able to save him from death chapter 5 verse 9 he became the source of eternal salvation chapter 6 verse 9 things that belong to salvation chapter 7 verse 25 He is able to save to the uttermost those who call on Him. Chapter 9, verse 28. To save those who eagerly are waiting for Him. What's God's word of encouragement to those that are facing affliction and perhaps ultimately death? Under the constant pressure of abuse, loss of comfort, possession, security, even life this small cell church gathered in a home somewhere likely in the heart of Rome desperately needed a word of hope. And that word was a reminder that Jesus is superior, sufficient, and sovereign over all. God in His amazing grace gave them a word of hope. I'm watching the clock, sorry. A friend suggested to me last night that i should make this two sermons and that friend may be right it says in hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 that they constructed an ark for the saving of the household of noah now he says here in verse 3 that this great salvation was declared by christ affirmed by eyewitnesses and confirmed by divine intervention notice first of all it was declared at first by the Lord Matthew 13 17 blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear for truly I say to you many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and they did not hear it Mark chapter 1 verse 14 Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel. Chapter 14, verse 6 of John, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. This great salvation message was declared, first of all, by Jesus himself. Secondly, it was affirmed by eyewitnesses. It was attested to us by those who heard which indicates then that the author of Hebrews is a second-hand hearer of this message. It says in Acts chapter uh, 2 verse 42, at 3,000 baby Christians, and how do you ground baby Christians in the faith? And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching they would they would hear the apostles talk about the old testament and how it was fulfilled in christ and what christ taught them and so he says here it was attested to us by those who heard we we understand the reliability of the source of our information and we believe it john or first john chapter 1 verse 3 that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. Or Second Peter chapter one, verse sixteen: For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to His Majesty. In back in John chapter one, verse fourteen, here's John writing sixty years later, and a man about ninety years old reflecting back on the earthly days of Jesus he said and we beheld the word means we studied closely his glory and it was the glory as of the only begotten of the father it was full of grace and truth that's what Peter's talking about we were eyewitnesses to his majesty and then third he says it was God, who bore witness by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. We're going to come back next week and pick that verse up and unpack it a little bit more. But in the Old Testament it says that an issue, an accusation, or a declaration has to be confirmed by two witnesses. The author says, Jesus satisfied two and added one, and it is the witness of God Himself. He confirmed the work of Jesus with signs. Signs are simply those things that point to something beyond themselves. It's like, like, what does that mean? Well, the meaning is that direction. It's a sign. It points there. Wonders are those awe-inspiring evidences of divine power. They're those kind of jaw-dropping moments where you go, that had to be God. God. A couple years ago, about three months into the year, Linda told me that she had, she had started a sort of a unique prayer journal for the year. She didn't tell me about it early on, but she said, I, I, I want the family to understand the reality of God's presence in our life. And so I've prayed this year that God would do jaw-dropping things in our family so that they could not explain it as anything other than that was God and three months into the year I mean it was just like you see the problem is God is probably doing those things in your household right now but because you're distracted or preoccupied you don't even see them signs wonders and miracles miracles are when God in his grace overrides the laws of nature he does what is humanly unexplainable and impossible and then finally he gives gifts to the believers and so we'll look at this next week but the reality is is that the gifts he's talking about are when God raises you up we said we need people that will help minister to children in Awana and your first response was well that leaves me out I got nothing to offer and then you by faith took a bold step and say Lord send me and you show up and God does stuff through you that is way beyond you and you go that's a spiritual gift. It's not the same as a talent. It's something that you can only do because the Spirit of God living in you enables you to do. Next week ought to be an interesting sermon. Thank goodness i got seven days to get it ready. Only work one day a week. I put in about four hours, and then this is it. So, John 20, verse 30, 31. Many of the signs Jesus did They point to something that are not written in this book but these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and if you believe that you have life in his name or as Peter stood in front of those who had crucified the Savior in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost said Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. This word salvation or to save. It speaks of deliverance, of preservation, of rescue from harm or destruction. The technical definition is to effect successfully the full deliverance of someone or something from impending danger. That's the heart of the book of Hebrews. This One, this Son of God has come to deliver us from inevitable danger or destruction. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 77, when he's finally able to speak again after nine months, I, I just don't take this as a prejudicial statement at all, but I'm just thinking, here's Zechariah, he's in the temple all alone, supposed to be all alone, there's somebody else there, there's an angel, he says, now, your, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a son, and he's going to be the forerunner to Jesus, the Old Testament prophecy fulfilled, and he's like, say what, we're old, that can never happen, he said, okay, it's going to happen, he says, well, give me a sign, he goes, okay, you're not going to say anything for nine months, so he goes home, can't speak, and then his wife's cousin, Mary, shows up, three months pregnant, and two women in the house, and Zechariah can't say anything. This is like, <laughs> which is kind of typical if you're one man in a house of two women. I mean, there's nothing unusual about that. But when he finally can say something, he says, and he sent him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. You see, salvation must begin with a moral cleansing. We are soiled and stained by offenses. He begins by washing us clean. Remember how good it felt to finally be clean, clean when His grace fully forgave you? But you see, this salvation, as we're going to read in the book of Hebrews, it is an ongoing process. It begins with justification, regeneration, the declaration that you are righteous before God. But then on top of that, then there is this season after you've come to faith in Christ and before you stand in His presence called sanctification. Hebrews speaks to our sanctification. How can I become less like me and more like Jesus? It's a process that He accomplishes And we don't lose heart in the midst of it because we have this bold assurance that one day it will be finalized in our glorification. We will stand before Him as John says in 1 John. And we will be like Him because we will see Him exactly as He is. Or a better way to put it is I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. A.W. Tozer said this. If we are not changed by grace then we are not saved by grace now very quickly the necessity of our salvation is this man's condition we are totally depraved we are not all of us as bad as we could be but we are already as bad off As we can be we are totally depraved we are totally separated from God he says in Genesis 2 17 the day that you eat of it you will certainly die Romans chapter 6 verse 23 the wages of sin is death man's condition mandates a greater salvation the supremacy of Christ the superiority of Christ's salvation is this it is never based on merit there's nothing you can do to earn it and therefore there's nothing that you must do to continue maintaining it secondly it is accomplished by a divinely determined process Romans chapter 8 verse 28 and those that he has foreknown he has predestined and those that he has predestined he has called and those that he has called he has justified and those that he justified is glorified. I have a sense that because of the clock that we're going to come back to that next week. It operates with man's will to choose. This this is is the tension point. So I would just like to skip over that because that's going to create all kinds of discussion among us. He, he, He gives us a call to believe and then he tells us what the consequences of disbelieving are the reality is is that no one is ever saved who does not want to be saved he does not force you against your will to be saved but your individual response to his call will determine your ultimate eternal destination and it is affected by the work of the Spirit Ephesians 2 you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses he has made us alive with Christ. You cannot give a deceased individual a command and expect that they will respond to it. They cannot. Regrettably much of our attempt to change our world is asking dead people to do righteous things and they can't and then finally it is fully the work of God's grace for by grace you have been saved through faith and that that what the grace no 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 that faith is not of yourself that is a gift of God it's not as a result of works lest anyone should boast or he says in James chapter 1 verse 17 Every good and perfect gift has come down from above. God has to initiate it. God has to do the work. The wonderful thing about the superiority and sufficiency of Christ's salvation is that He is both the messenger and the message of salvation. The apostles in their writing are simply witnesses to that. And God the Father is the enabler of that. So He chose us for His good pleasure. He did not rescue us against our will. He drew our hearts to Christ and then changed our minds about Him. God demonstrated, Romans 5.8, His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still spitting in His face, despising Him, wanting nothing to do with submission to His authority, didn't even want to admit that He was there, wanted to join 4,000 atheists standing on a hill flipping God off that doesn't exist, assuming that that will quench the message. That was us. Maybe not as bad as we could have been, but we were as in a bad shape as we ever possibly could be we need a savior he drew our hearts to Christ and changed our minds about Christ he chose us not because we believed but he chose us so that we might be able to believe that's why Romans 11:33 is this amazing oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways or who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The question that you have to ask yourself is if you ignore this so great salvation, where else will you go? What are your other options? So the author's pastoral exhortation is this. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. For there is within all of us the danger of simply drifting away. Imperceptibly, unnoticed, over time we lose our greatest treasure. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this, if you examined a hundred people who have lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by an honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? There is an undertow that draws us away from the most precious things that undertow perhaps in your life is just simply your years of being a follower of Jesus you're just overly familiar with these truths they just don't stir your heart you don't get a chill down the back of your spine when you hear so great a salvation anymore perhaps the undertow of weariness you just say you know it's it's time for the kids to do it i I've served the Lord. I've done my time. It's just time for me to... I'm just worn out. Or perhaps it's suffering. Or maybe it's pushback from family and friends. If I follow this Jesus, it's going to cost me relationships I'm not willing to surrender. Or perhaps it's just disillusionment. This Christian life is a whole lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I I really bought into that name it and claim it thing. I thought I'd be living in a bigger house, driving a fancier car, have more connected, influential friends. But mostly it's just busyness. It's just a preoccupation with lesser things. I, I, I think I've done about 20 funerals or something since the first of the year. Nobody, all you sent me the picture of the hearse with the U-Haul trailer, I appreciate that. Nobody took any of that stuff with them. We just get preoccupied with things that will not outlive us. Somebody put it this way, a snowflake is a very tiny thing, but a sky filled with them will bury you. Beware, a hundred cares a day, can insulate you from the wonders of Christ. Or perhaps your drift is because you have continued to maintain a pet sin. Something that you just continue to default to. It gives you a sense of security or confidence. I love the title on this morning's Desiring God devotional. You can't fake what you love. You can't fake what you love. What's really the heartbeat, the passion of your heart is evident to the people that are around you. Years ago, I invited a friend to come and preach here. I was really excited for you to hear him. I sat and listened to him in both services. I was deeply disappointed. I mean, what he said was accurate and true, but it was like flat, monotone. There was just nothing. And afterward, we took him out for lunch with the family and all. And somebody said something about a new exercise and diet program, and the guy came alive. And when we left lunch, I told Linda, I said, that's what I wanted in the pulpit. So you can't fake the things you love. So how do we resist the drift? He says very simply, we must pay much closer attention the unattended heart will always drift away. There are so many undertow currents pulling against it. So he writes to a real church of real people in a real place, at a real time, in a real storm, undergoing increasing pressure. And as a result, they are simply going with the flow and they're drifting away. So how do I pay much more close attention? Just let your heart hear again and again the stories of the Gospels. The life of Jesus, His words, His works. Only hearing His voice through His Word will once again anchor your soul against the inevitable undertow of drifting. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation or as my great granddaughter Lottie would say that's so great now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever amen you're dismissed